Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome to this event on British foreign policy. Our times are changing. I'm Federica Bicchi, Associate Professor in the Department of International Relations, and I'm delighted to see all of you here to discuss um, all things British foreign policy, really. This event is sponsored by the Department of International Relations, as well as by New Deep, a research project Bent Onra and I are running on relations between Ireland and the UK and funded by the ESLC and IRC, we gratefully uh, acknowledge uh, the, the funding. It is also supported by the European Foreign Policy Unit of LSE, of which I am the new director uh, and which aims to foster a conversation about the foreign policy of European countries, including the UK. When I thought of this title last summer, I was wondering to what extent times were really a changing. The Brexit referendum had dramatically shifted the UK's set of political partners and the government was promoting a narrative about global Britain reaching out beyond uh, Europe. Thanks to a group of uh, talented postgraduate students, we mapped British foreign policy vis-a-vis key partners beyond Europe, um, from India to Russia to Hong Kong. But the bottom line was that global Britain was more of an aspiration than a reality. And you can read the 10 papers on the European Foreign Policy Unit website and make up your mind. But yes, there was the transformation of Foreign Office into the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office with the disbandment of DFID. But it has not been clear how this new organization and the government aim to deliver on the goals set out uh, by the integrated review of security, defense, development, and foreign aid that the uh, uh, British government published in March 2021. It looked as if the UK was going to project its power in the Indo-Pacific, both militarily and in terms of alliances, like in the much mentioned and now partly forgotten AUKUS Treaty with Australia and uh, the United States. Today, with Russia's brutal aggression of uh, Ukraine uh, going on as we speak, there is a need for clarity in terms of what British foreign policy uh, stands for. What are the values that the UK is trying to defend, trying to promote, and how is it trying to do it? Is the UK better outside the EU in terms of positioning itself, setting its own goals, or is it even more exposed to the vagaries of international politics? To what extent does the new security architecture in Europe suit the UK uh, in terms of a for instance, in the field of cyber. And are relations between the UK and the Republic of Ireland finally out of their recent rocky patch? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by a great panel of experts. We have uh, Richard Whitman, who is a Professor of Politics and International Relations at the Global Europe Centre, University of Kent. 
Richard currently holds the British Academy and Leverhulme Michael Dockrell Senior Research Fellowship in British Foreign Policy and has published widely on the foreign security and defense policies of the UK and the EU. Dr. Kate Ferguson is a senior policy analyst specializing in violence prevention. She is co-executive director at Protection Approaches, where she heads research and policy. She is currently special advisor to the Parliamentary Select Committee on International Development, assisting in their ongoing inquiry on the UK's approach to atrocity prevention. Her book, Architectures of Violence, was published in 2020 for Hearst and Oxford University Press. Last but not least, Ben Tondra is full professor of international relations at the School of Politics and International Relations of the University College Dublin, with a long list of publications on European foreign affairs, especially on matters related to security and defense. So welcome to the three of you, and let's get started. Um, let's start with an overview of what you see out there in terms of British foreign policy after Brexit. What are the main characteristics that you see emerging in British foreign policy? What are the continuities? What are the changes in British foreign policy? And what evidence is there, if any, of global Britain? Shall we start with Richard and then move on to Kate and Ben? Richard. Thank you very much, uh, Federica, and, uh, and thank you for this, uh, this event, because I think it's fantastically chosen in terms of timing. Um, I think if we think about the characteristics of, of UK foreign policy post-Brexit, I mean, everything's still, I think, a work in progress. And I think that's to be expected because, you know, in leaving the EU, you had a major transformation uh, from what had been the key organising basis for uh, UK's international uh, influence. Uh, and, you know, that relationship with the EU had been a key organizing device for the UK's relationship with other European states, members of the EU, but it was an important fulcrum, I think, for the UK's approach to seeking influence um, in Europe and, and beyond Europe, and, and especially important for transatlantic relations. So, you know, this is a major order, order structural change, and I think a structural change of, of that magnitude uh, is not something that the UK is going to adjust itself uh, from uh, swiftly. And as you said quite rightly in your introduction, we had the had this idea of global Britain, a sort of placeholder uh, idea, which was uh, pretty thin in terms of substance. Uh, but I think we've, we've got a little bit more added to that, and I'll, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Perhaps it's also worth thinking about whether we can draw a distinction between UK foreign policy from around June 2016 until 12, 18 months ago, you know, when the major order preoccupation was the negotiations with the EU. And clearly that was a key foreign policy uh, objective for the UK. Is there a shift? Have we seen an acceleration, if you like, of a new, new patterns within UK foreign policy over the last 12, 14 months, sort of post uh, trade and cooperation agreement signed? post-integrated review, uh, which is now uh, 12 months on, are we sort of starting to see, see more by way of substance uh, when it comes to global Britain? Well, maybe, but I think I draw a distinction between 
the UK's European foreign policy, which I think remains somewhat uh, emaciated, if I could put it that way. Uh, and you've got some key bilateral relationships, uh, such as those with Ireland and France, which are, uh, I would see, really being subject of, of, of a casual disregard. I mean, that's classic British understatement, I would say, uh, which is pretty extraordinary when you consider their importance for the UK uh, as uh, as neighbours. So you know, European foreign policy, I think, is is not really coming into to focus to the degree that one uh, should expect uh, of, of a of a European power uh, like like the UK. If you look beyond Europe, I mean, there are some relationships where clearly uh, they've taken on a bit more muscle. If you look at the relationship with Japan, for example, you know, where there's a sort of burgeoning uh, security uh, dialogue. You know, the UK is quite pleased uh, to have been accepted as an ASEAN dialogue partner, and that's quite important for the story that Britain wants to tell itself or tell about itself rather in terms of the, the tilt. But some other key relationships for the UK, like the transatlantic, transatlantic relationship, feel, feel rather brittle to me. I mean, notwithstanding uh, the war on Ukraine, you know, which does create a, a requirement for enhanced cooperation, deep cooperation, it, it just seems to be. Uh, a relationship where the UK is is still very much uh, not connected uh, in the way that uh, historically uh, uh, it's been, and I think as you again as you touched on your introduction, there've been clearly been some major order restructuring arrangements in terms of the creation of the FCTO, and if we think about resources as well, allocation of resources, crudely, I mean the government has taken a decision to spend less on development, more on defence. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that is a, a major uh, order change. Three things I want to bring into the discussion really briefly, and, and we can come back to these, as well I see real characteristics for me, standout characteristics of what the UK um, uh, has done uh, in, in, in a sort of global Britain foreign policy. One is there's a major preoccupation with status or with standing, and you see that quite a lot coming out. Uh, with the negotiations with the EU, particularly on the, the TCA, where there's this preoccupation with what I call a kind of assertive sovereignism, you know, putting the concern to be treated as an equal ahead of perhaps what might have been a more considered uh, calculation uh, of uh, the UK's best interests. Uh, and, and that's very much flowed into uh, the way that the UK uh, approached things like the G7 presidency uh, and the COP. And, and lean to quite a sort of hyperactivity, I would say, within, within uh, NATO. Secondly, I think the UK is rather enamoured with the idea now of what I call venue shopping. You know, it's going to different places to, to seek, uh, to, seek to, to replace in a way uh, or to replicate some of the things it did with the EU previously. So uh, G7, uh, UN Security Council, NATO, none of which are a, 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 a replication or a replacement. Uh, and we've seen, you know, new uh, new propositions such as Five Eyes, you know, which has been brought together uh, on Hong Kong and a bit of a stress on the quad with UK, France, Germany uh, and the US. But it's interesting that where it's done this venue shopping, there are also places where I think it's been very unsuccessful. The E3, I think, which is something that UK puts some store by as being a, a, an alternative way of perhaps backseat driving on European foreign policy hasn't really worked out for the UK in the Way that might have hoped it would, and the Commonwealth also. You remember all of that chat about you know Commonwealth 2.0 and so on and so on. That hasn't really worked for the UK. But lastly, I think it's worth thinking about. This will be where I'll shut up. Is is what I call a sort of propensity towards plurilateralism in Europe, and by that I mean that that the the British government is gradually 
setting out a whole series of bilateral, trilateral relationships with countries. We saw that Ukraine, Poland, UK trilateral format, for example. There's a lot of stress being put on the Joint Expeditionary Force, you know, the 10 nation Jeff that we could come back to later. Uh, and in a way, its approach towards Ukraine was, was part of this sort of pattern uh, of seeking out new kinds of bilateral relationships, which maybe flags up some kind of a new emergent European stat, uh, strategy, but I think very, 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 very embryonic. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, we will come back to the uh, issue of Ukraine. Um, but before we zoom in on the uh, very present, Kate, um, would you like to have the floor? Yeah, sure. Thank you. And yes, thanks so much for for having me here join you and also convening this conversation. It feels um, a kind of quite difficult time to have a conversation about something I suspect all of us on this call have been thinking about for you know some years, but it's brought the consequences of the last few years into focus in a really dramatic way over recent weeks. Um, I think looking back though, that period since the Brexit referendum, I'd characterize UK's foreign policy as essentially being sort of opportunities and promises yet unmet. And without, without really a kind of strategy or explanation as to why. And, um, you know, I, I speak from a position of working within human rights and looking at the UK contributions to human rights and especially the prevention of violence abroad. Um, and, you know, as a sector, there was some real skepticism around, if that's, that's another British understatement there, around the referendum. Um, it was really quite painful. But there was also an opportunity to reset there was an opportunity around what an independent foreign policy separate from the EU or more separate could look like. And so far, I don't think whether in messaging, whether in uh, funding, whether in restructuring, whether in, you know, ha has been clear. So I think that the last few years have really been dominated, I think, by a lack of clarity and an inconsistency. And I, I take Richard's point around the fact that this is a big reset and will take some time. But I think um, it has been difficult to really see where those endeavors have been going. Um, I think the other thread really of the last few years is a smaller Britain, not a more global Britain. And I say that from um, the sector that I work in and the foreign diplomats that, that I and my team and, and my partners work with. Britain is seen as smaller, less serious and more inward looking. The reputation for UK foreign policy that was always contested and dis discussed, there was never consensus, of course, um, particularly in the human rights field, that reputation has been damaged hugely. Um, and the damage that was done by Brexit was not made better by the conscious attempt to engage there, but it also wasn't made better by the very um, rushed and, and quite shocking way in which DFID and FCO were merged. Um, and I say that as someone who actually sees a lot of opportunity in that merger. Um, you know, it was done quite brutally and, um, you know, it was um, pretty shocking that senior people in DFID found out the same way that I did by watching, watching the um, commons. 
Um, but that that translated internationally and has reverberated, I think, in, in quite quite a substantial way. And then came the, the um, development cuts. And so that tripartite, particularly in the fields that, that I work in, um, has really had an impact in how Britain's foreign policy is seen from, from elsewhere. I think if we look a bit more closely at sort of some of the detail, we also see a reluctance or a failure to um, reconcile or even address some of the fundamental inconsistencies that exist um, in UK foreign policy that have been exacerbated or have been seen to be exacerbated either by UK's exit from the European Union or by the mood of the world, wider global shifts and other, other issues. Um, I think top of those lists is um, a reluctance by this government to look at how it deals with Russia and China. And, you know, we had some conversation when the integrated review finally came out around the weakness of, of how China was talked about and the need for a China strategy. And I think the attention of um, the treatment of Uyghurs, particularly also of Hong Kong, has brought into focus this tension of how can the UK have a relationship with China and what does that look like? But the same was said for Russia and the same was true for Russia and perhaps more so because of its um, geopolitical positioning of which now, of course, we are really seeing the consequences of. The consequence for what it means for um, UK's trade policy outside of the European Union and how that interacts with whatever British values might be, but certainly rights, freedoms um, and democracy. And that hasn't been resolved. And I don't say that as if it's an easy thing to resolve, but it has been very unclear to see the intentions around seeking to resolve that. And, you know, those four core tensions weren't addressed in the integrated review. And I don't see how um, steps have been taken towards that. Um, the fifth, I think, is the, is the political positioning of the UK within Europe and within the European Union that, again, hasn't really been resolved and, and actually um, has been really unnecessarily made more tense and more hostile. Um, and again, we're seeing now with Ukraine some of the real consequences of that. Um, it, has, it has damaged the relationship with the United States. Um, and I think that, that Brexit um, and the, the development cuts also contributed to that breaking. Um, I don't want to be um, all gloom. I do think that the integrated review promised to chart a new or renewed course. Um, we're not here to talk about how that process was done, but we got it. It's a year in. And already um, we have seen even some of the more bold commitments that were set out there, like the Indo-Pacific tilt to actually appear pretty two-dimensional and not, they haven't even weathered 12 months. And we're already seeing internal shifts within the FCDO of questioning whether that is in fact the right thing to do. Um, and that points, I think, to my overarching point of this lack of strategic thinking, this lack of strategy, not ambition. Strategy doesn't have to be bold, but you do need to have some. Um, but the integrated review did promise, particularly on that rights front, particularly on that kind of looking forward front, it promised a new approach to conflict, moving away from that approach that differed 
had sometimes lent too heavily into that um, modern mass violence, whether armed conflict or mass atrocity crimes or widespread human rights violations come from poverty and poor education levels. And we know this isn't true. It comes from human rights deficits. That is where modern violence comes from and perhaps always has done. And so this new approach to conflict that opened up the recognition that it needed to prioritize specifically mass atrocities in conflict and non-conflict settings, you know, that was important. The emphasis on resilience, both domestically and across um, as a whole of government understanding and indeed a whole of society understanding of resilience, um, you know, which of course, I think, you know, we were able to kind of get that as a result of, of the pandemic. Um, that matters. There was more of an indication of thinking about British foreign policy as related to domestic policy and related to people within the UK and UK borders in a manner that is needed and had previously been lacking. The integrated review has prompted um, a skills audit of the, of, of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which is important, was needed, and I think has revealed some gaps that has helped really think, give the opportunity for the FCDO to think about its resources. It's looked at early warning and how the UK does its horizon scanning of where risks are coming from. But these are still TBC, right? We still don't know what is going to be delivered, the extent to which that promise is fulfilled. Um, and so I think, unfortunately, like my, my summary of, of where we are in those post-Brexit Brexit years is it's been unclear, it's been inconsistent, we have lacked a strategy, we are seen as a smaller nation and taken less seriously, even if the individual contributions of brilliant diplomats and brilliant programs, of course, still hold. So all is, all is not lost. Um, I think that foreign policy has become more reactive rather than strategic. If we look at the response to Afghanistan, if we look at the response to Ukraine, these were crises that were foreseeable and were foreseen. And evidently, the kind of um, fluidity and freedoms that were promised from an independent foreign policy away from the European Union have not come to fruition. And that flux that was triggered both by Brexit and by the merger um, has only calmed UK capabilities and role in the world. Thank you very much, uh, Kate. Uh, uh, so many uh, interesting points. Ben, would you like to come in here? Yeah, th thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> as, the, as the disinterested outsider, um, I hope I'm, I'm outside enough to give you some insight, but close enough I can say, I can say it frankly and, 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 and not politely. Um, so from the outside looking in, I mean, what I see is, is some continuity, uh, quite a bit of confusion, uh, and some real signs of marginalization in British foreign policy. In terms of the continuities, I think the global Britain thread is evident. Um, I think we do see sort of strong principled rhetoric on democracy, on open markets, on free trade, on building and reinforcing global partnerships. So at, at that level, I mean, I, I, global Britain is visible, if you like, from outside. However, there's only really very partial follow through on that. Um, I think NATO is solid. The UK and NATO are solid. I think the UK at the UN is very strong. I think on the trade portfolio, it's still patchy and very unclear as to what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, I also think, frankly, there's some overreach evident here. I think the, the Indo-Pacific tilt uh, lacks credibility, to be perfectly frank with you. Um, 
I think it rather reminds me of, of, of Tony Blair's ethical foreign policy, uh, long on PR and, and short on substance. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the continuity. In terms of the confusions, um, I just don't get it, but the UK just can't seem to drop the Brexit bone. Um, you talk about partnerships in Europe while burning through UK credibility uh, on the Northern Ireland Protocol, on the withdrawal agreement. You know, it's impossible to conceptualize a global Britain which fails to fulfill its basic treaty obligations. That's just extraordinary to my mind. And it's visible and people witness it. And we see it almost on, a well, prior to Ukraine, we saw it on, on a on nearly daily basis. I have to also reference uh, Prime Minister Johnson's comparison of Brexit with Ukraine's fight for its life, both profoundly ignorant and deeply offensive. Uh, you know, we read your newspapers, we watch your television, we see this nonsense, um, and it really comes across extraordinarily badly. You know, playing to the to the Conservative Party backbenches just shreds UK's global credibility. Now, on the Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, I think there, there are obvious wins and possibilities here. You know, a, an FTA with India is an obvious win-win for the, for the UK. But even there, you don't see coherence in tactics or strategy. You see Westminster at odds in terms of its immigration goals, in terms of its trade goals, in terms of geo geostrategic goals. Um, and you also, and I, I referenced, you know, you know Kate's uh, conversation about developing, you know, the gutting of, of, of UK development research. Again, an extraordinary misstep, uh, which, which again is very, very visible and very, very tangible and, and was a marker of UK excellence um, and has now effectively disappeared from the field. Um, my final point is on, is on marginalization. I think obviously the UK remains a global player. From my perspective, I think it's somewhat diminished as a result of Brexit, but still a significant player on significant global issues. But the UK, honestly, I think is increasingly seen as an add-on and an afterthought. Um, Richard referenced, you know, this, this sovereigntist, I don't know if I pronounced the word properly, the sovereigntistism of, of UK foreign policy. I have to tell you, coming from a small state, I recognize that. You know, that fetishization of flags and status and position comes straight from the deep insecurities of being a small country because you're desperate for recognition, you're desperate to be seen, you're anxious that others would treat you as you would wish to be treated. That's small state insecurity. That's not what the UK was 10 years ago, but that kind of small state insecurity really does permeate a lot of what we see coming out of, out of the UK. Um, and this isn't, this, is, this is an anecdote, this isn't a data point, um, but just you know, looking at the coverage in this country of the Ukraine crisis, Hypothetically, had the UK remained within the EU, there would be huge coverage here of what the British Prime Minister was doing, what the British MOD was doing within the EU to push the EU, to push the collective action. It is extraordinary to me how little attention now Irish media gives what the UK is talking or doing about Ukraine. We're concerned about what Warsaw is doing, what Berlin is doing, what Paris is doing, even what Riga is doing over what is happening in London. So my summation, um, you know, if I have to give you a tagline is, UK British foreign policy is a poor hand being played badly. Thank you, Ben. Um, let's go straight to the war in Ukraine. 
because, you know, this has been a wake up call for uh, a lot of people, for, um, you know, uh, any foreign policy across the globe. Um, so how do you assess the role of British foreign policy in the early stages of the crisis, the run up to the invasion? And now that the uh, war is going on and in a way it's becoming more and more uh, brutal. What has the UK done differently or better or worse than its allies, including EU member states? Kate, would you like to start on this one? And then we can go to Ben and Richard. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I mean, on the one hand, we've seen this extraordinary outpouring of uh, support for and solidarity with Ukraine and Ukrainians from the public, um, in, the, in the press, uh, from parliamentarians across the political spectrum, even from businesses. You know, we've actually seen um, a proactive response to pulling out um, business some sometimes from from Russia or thinking about how they can fund you know these kind of sometimes they're performative but for performative solidarity is also sometimes indicative mm. of, of a wider mood um, this hasn't really been matched by the UK government but I think that this is for two reasons um, one is um, because of sort of the reasons that I was talking before is the lack of strategy. Uh, they don't have a strategy on conflict and, atrocity and, and, and mass atrocities. So how are they gonna respond? And because they're still in flux, still the Foreign Office and DFID haven't been reconciled. Um, and some of it is political. Um, and, and so those, you know, where that um, waiting lies, I think is, is probably for ne negotiation and, and discussion. Um, but it was too slow to respond. And I, I was struck by Liz Truss giving evidence to the Foreign Affairs Select Committee a week or so ago on um, the UK's response to Ukraine, where she was emphatic that she and HMG knew that this invasion was coming months ago. And I thought, and yet you made no preparations for what we knew was gonna be a violent strategy that was driven and implemented by the commission of widespread human rights violations, war crimes, and very likely crimes against humanity, because we know that that's how Putin operates. We know that is his military political strategy, whether in Grozny, whether in Aleppo. We know this to be true. And yet none of those um, learnings, um, although that sounds a very euphemistic word to use, were put into what the UK did. Um, and, I, and, and that to me is, is, is problematic. We know that the pathology of the kinds of crimes that Putin and his forces are committing is different to conventional hierarchical armed conflict. And the HMG knows this, which is why they've recognized they need to prioritize its strategy on atrocities and have a new approach to modern conflict, but it's not there yet. Um, however, even the tools that the UK government has had at its disposal that um, it has policy for and are in theory easiest to deploy, it has been slow on. And just to pick two, sanctions and its approach to refugees. And taking the second first, let's note that the hateful borders bill 
was passed this afternoon, just minutes practically before we joined onto this call, which raises a standard of um, what is acceptable, you know, what is acceptable for the state structures to do uh, to um, the most vulnerable in the UK, the most vulnerable around the world, and essentially it, it, it impacts all of us. And so at the same time, we're having this debate about solidarity for Ukrainians, and Liz Truss says nothing is off the table. That bill says things are off the table. We were very, very slow to get moving on getting um, vulnerable Ukrainians out. And that is even knowing in the foreign secretary's own words that we knew that this was coming. And even those agencies that were there were not prepared to um, fully um, deliver either on a practical sense of kind of like how the visas worked or to catch the most um, vulnerable at risk. And so whether that is African um, and Arab citizens who are in Ukraine who are falling through the cracks, whether that is Roma populations, whether that, you know, that, that's happened. Sanctions, our sanctions policy, are oh, the sanctions policy, which goes back to the Brexit point, which because now the UK has its own independent sanctions regime, of which Dominic Raab was very proud of, has been slow, inefficient, and we're now in fact tethering ourselves as a state to what the EU and America is doing first, and then still not going as far. Um, and so overall, it's not, it's, it's just not been good enough. And so I think, you know, if I'm allowed to just make a couple of quick pleas to what could be done, because it's very easy for us to sit in our comfortable chairs here and say in the face of a really cataclysmic crisis, oh, you've done a bad job. There are things that I think carry on from the earlier question that you asked that could be done. One is thinking really carefully about strategic diplomatic leadership and not replicating the same mistakes that the UK together with the US and France and sometimes the European Union have made in the face of these um, uh, crises that are seminal, you know, that breakthrough and whether that is Libya, whether that is Syria, for different reasons, um, the UK, France and the US and often the European Union have decided to work together and not seek a more global um, coalition or more global legitimacy. Russia is a P5 country and we need that. And I think that General Assembly vote where Russia was only able to get Belarus uh, Syria and North Korea was incredibly symbolic and should be capitalized on. We should be reaching out, you know, the UK to our partners um, in order to make sure that we're, we are setting a global standard and we're able to take advantage of the fact that finally, after 20 years of impunity in the face of rising um, violence against civilians, that finally we've had a, a sense of raising expectations of what the international community should do around international humanitarian law and so on. You know, Kenya's speech at the General Assembly regarding sovereignty was phenomenal. That should be centered in, in this strategy. The second is, is, is having the ability to map what the UK actually can do. The UK currently lacks the capabilities to map its levers of influence over Russia. And so therefore, its sanctions and its diplomatic engagement is kind of ad hoc. It's very responsive. Map the architectures of violence of where it comes from, whether that is military, whether that's communications, whether that's where the money is, whether that's organized crime. That's the kind of stuff that intelligence agencies do. It's a more American way of informing sanctions. 
Um, and so, you know, those are my, my two kind of pleas. And just to go back to the integrated review for a second, then this promise of what Global Britain was and what the integrated review promised, you know, it, it said it would look at this new form of violence and it would look specifically at atrocity crimes. Putin has driven his foreign policy by the commission, enablement, or perpetration of these crimes. And it is, to me, unforgivable that we are unprepared at this stage and that that crisis team doesn't have those expertise. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I stopped there. I mean, I don't have much good news on, on that front, I'm afraid, I'm sorry. <laughs> No, thank you. But I think that your point about, uh, uh, you know, capitalizing on the uh, diplomatic leadership and if I can add, you know, the capacity to build alliances, you know, should definitely figure uh, higher on the list of the, on the to do list, so to say. Ben. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, from my perspective, I think I think British foreign policy on the on the Russian war on Ukraine really has exemplified some extraordinary UK strengths. Um, some extraordinary UK strengths, um, which have been superlative on, for example, defense and security, on the supply of defensive weapons to Ukraine, uh, on, as, as Richard referenced earlier on, the, uh, the commitment on the joint expeditionary force with Poland and the Baltic states, uh, with the UK's role in, 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 in NATO. Um, so all of that, you know, serious, substantive, substantial and important. Um, there have also been some terrific rhetorical flourishes um, some great speeches, some some great rhetoric, some you know real sort of bulldog kind of <laughs> kind of kind of touches, um, but then the weaknesses almost immediately reasserted themselves. Um, the British weaknesses on migration, uh, the British weaknesses on chasing Russian money uh, in the city of London. I mean, really, I mean, just dreadful stuff, people. Just absolutely dreadful, and seem to be, you know, comparing comparing, you know. Even where 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 the UK is with you know, with, with Cyprus in terms of dependence on that Russian money and, and unwillingness to, to to chase it down, um, and I think <coughs> sorry, but for me I think the migration has been has been the worst aspect of it. Um, the really really slow start, the abject confusion between between great departments of state as to what you were doing, how you were doing it, misinformation in Parliament on on what was happening and what was being done. It was just just at a, it was just egregious. Um, and just one tiny, tiny illustration of that, as, as you may, as you may or may not be aware, um, because we share a, a common travel area with the UK, Ireland is not part of the, the Schengen Agreement. So we still had visa restrictions uh, on all Ukrainians coming to Ireland. You know, at the outset of the invasion, Ireland dropped all visa restrictions, offered three-year working visas to all Ukrainian citizens, irregardless of status. Um, and by, I think it was last weekend, we had upwards of five and a half, six thousand Ukrainian refugees um, in the Republic, uh, compared to, I think at that time, 800 in the UK. Um, so not only do you have the disparity in terms, of, in terms of responsiveness and treatment, but we also got complaints from the UK, reported in our local press, uh, complaints from the UK that we had dropped the visa requirements that we were exposing the UK by virtue of our common travel area, we were exposing the UK to security threats because we weren't vetting, you know, destitute mothers and children at the Port of Calais um, or, or, or on the plane, planes coming in. Again, it's an anecdote, it's not a data point, but it just exemplifies the differentiation uh, of response 
particularly on that really, really important issue of, of migration. Thanks. Thank you. No, that's uh, uh, very, uh, yeah, very visible uh, as well. Richard. I don't really want to repeat, uh, you know, the points that, that Ben and Kate have made. And, you know, I, I think they're all very well made. Uh, and, but maybe just to, to make three, three observations. I think, you know, Kate's point um, about the, the lack of joined upness, uh, I think is an important one because, you know, the, the UK spent some time, you know, supposedly building an infrastructure. We, you know, National Security Council and all that, we're, we're supposed to be thinking across uh, departments of state. We're supposed to have mechanisms in place to coordinate, to, to respond. Uh, and so and so on and, and clearly um there's been a systemic uh, failure uh, i think of this as a major order foreign security and defense policy challenge and and the sort of bits of the system that have tended to work better have been the the kind of politico security bits you know the bits in and around the mod where you've had this longer standing relationship with ukraine and i think you know, what I worry about a little bit is, you know, yes, and, and thank you, Ben, you know, the UK, you know, has done some things very well, uh, I think. And and I think you could say that it's sort of the sagacity uh, of the analysis on Russia in the integrated review, you know, can give the government uh, some, uh, some, uh, some comfort, if you like, that, uh, you know, it, it was able so clearly to identify uh, what kind of threat uh, Russia represented. But having that capacity, having that quality of analysis and having that sort of foresight to think about how Ukraine fits uh, within uh, that, uh, that response uh, to Russia. You know, the loss has been being outside the EU diplomatic system is that, um, you know, that couldn't be conveyed as effectively uh, as otherwise uh, might have been the case. Uh, in the past, and and the UK's strengths that could have been balanced with other member state strengths, particularly you know bordering states when it comes to the reception of refugees and so on, uh, that's not possible any longer for the UK outside the EU. So the things that it's weak on really stand out as being things that's weak on, uh, and these in some way detract attention from the things that it's it's rather uh, better on uh, and, and rather stronger on. But I think, you know, one, one thing that, uh, you know, maybe a, a small bright spot is that we, we've seen over Russia and we've seen over Ukraine uh, the, the rebuilding of a cross-party consensus in Parliament uh, on foreign and security policy issues, which had completely broken down, uh, I think, uh, through, through Brexit. Although saying that, you know, it's, you know, one of the things I found particularly difficult to stomach on the Prime Minister's remarks at the weekend. I mean, the things that he said at the front end of his speech were pretty crass. Um, but what he had to say at the end about the opposition, you know, sort of raising the white flag and so on, were pretty distasteful, uh, I think, and completely inappropriate uh, when you've, you've had this. Uh, I mean, essentially, the opposition has sort of lent support to the government uh, on, it, on its Russia uh, policy. And I think that's, that's uh, rather inexcusable. But it all, in, then also, to me, begs the question, as to how easy it's going to be for the UK to, to get back to a uh, sort of cross-party consensus on core issues and core concerns, and how far something like the integrated review, which is, as uh, you know, 
Kate says is 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 flawed, but at least it, it had the value of sort of bringing things together and thinking about uh, UK's uh, security as a, a as a package. I mean, that's not going to have a sort of cross party buy in. Uh, I think, uh, because of the way that the government is handling some of these issues. So, you know, it's not just a concern for now, if you like, but it's also a concern for, you know, how you build the appropriate uh, uh, muscle memory in Parliament uh, for making sure that we do have a strong cross-party consensus uh, on, a, on a Russia policy, which is clearly essential, not least for the reason that Ben picked up on, which is it, it's had a corrosive impact on our domestic political system um, because we haven't taken the necessary measures to safeguard our politics uh, from uh, the influence of, of Russian money. Thank you, Richard. Um, I, um, I know that there are questions uh, uh, coming up uh, in the uh, chat and uh, I look forward to more questions, more comments and to uh, giving a, a, a um, uh, a say to the audience that has been very patient so far, but I would like to just ask you three one last uh, question before uh, we move to the uh, Q&A, which is to, uh, on the mid to long term uh, perspective, especially in terms of security, because we see that the security regime in Europe is changing uh, dramatically is shifting. Uh, the EU and its member states are um, rethinking their strategies. The EU has published its uh, strategic compass uh, yesterday, and it mentions the UK, but only to say that we remain open to engage with the UK on security and defence. Um, what is the UK doing? What can we expect? Uh, have you got a, a crystal ball that we can uh, press into service uh, uh, at this point? Uh, shall we start with Ben? Thanks, Federica. I think I think my, my crystal ball is a bit dusty. Um, have to take it out of take it out of the, the darkened cupboard. Uh, to be honest, I think I think on, on this question, I'm I'm most hopeful um, because there's there's huge scope, opportunity, and possibility. Um, I would underscore the sense that from, from the EU's perspective, we witnessed a revolution in policy over the last number of weeks. Um, to see 30 or 40 years of German foreign security defense policy reversed, you know, of a Sunday morning <laughs> at 72 hours notice has been extraordinary. I mean, Federica, you and I and Richard in particular have been looking at the EU for, for decades now. You know, the prospect of what we've seen was unimaginable a month ago. So it is it is beyond change. It's a revolution. The potential for that, obviously, in terms of revolution is opportunity. And I think there is huge opportunity. I think the European Union's door is wide open to the UK to work with the UK in terms of what the European Union is doing. But our agenda is moving so far, so fast, so furiously in terms of the operationalization of the European Peace Facility, in terms of the European Defense Fund, in terms now of this 5,000 rapid reaction force. Now, caveat, we were supposed to have a rapid reaction force in 19 and 99, so I'm, I'm not gonna bet my house on the rapid reaction force. But just in terms of the scale and scope of what's going on, there, it's enormous. And there's huge opportunity to work with the UK on that. My fear is, admixed always with the hope, is that the UK, because of its domestic Brexit obsessions, simply will, will, will not be there, will, will not be willing to engage, um, as we have seen up to date in terms of the security defense agenda. I also have to emphasize, and I'll, and I'll finish on this point, I also have to emphasize that 
we are in a uniquely beneficial moment, having someone in the White House who is a confirmed Atlanticist. You know, in 30, 32 months time, we could be welcoming back President Trump. Or worse still, we could be welcoming back someone smarter than Trump, but working to Trump's agenda. That will expose the underbelly weaknesses and inconsistencies of European security defense policy in a cruel and harsh manner. And where the UK will stand on that, where the UK will work on that will be really, really critical to European security and defense and to the UK security and defense. Um, and sorry, the final, the final, final point there. One of the one of the potential dangers here is simply because of NATO's revivification and the now proximity of the European Union and NATO working damn near hand in glove threatens the possibility of leaving the UK out in precisely the same way that Turkey is out. And again, it's, it's a fear of marginalization. But I genuinely think the opportunity is in the UK's hands if it chooses to take it. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thank you. Richard. Thank you very much. I mean, of course, you know, the UK is a world leader uh, and I'm sure it's a world leader on crystal balls as well as everything else. Um, but, um, you know, my own, my own view, uh, maybe just on, on four issues and this overlaps with, with Ben uh, community. I mean, the first is, you know, let's think about Russia. I mean, Russia now is, is, has taken on, I think, for Europeans, um, uh, the challenge of containment, right? And if we think back to, to containment um, as originally pursued uh, in the aftermath of the, the Second World War, the early Cold War, it had societal, it had political, it had economic as well as military dimensions. Uh, and clearly, you know, there is an organization, NATO, which takes care of the, some of the security and the, and the military aspects. But the EU is really important for the societal and the, the political and the economic. So, um, you know, you, you have to have you have to have a connectivity and the UK has to have a connectivity with a major European organization that's going to be an important part of of the, the post-war in Ukraine containment of Russia. Um, and, uh, you know, secondly, and I agree with, with Ben, you know, the point he's, he's made very well on transatlantic relations, you know, not so long ago in the autumn that um, we were all worrying about the Biden administration uh, after the withdrawal from Afghanistan and, uh, and so on. And, and clearly, you know, the weather has changed quite significantly, but the UK and other European states share the same interest in, in managing the transatlantic relationship in a way which is agreeable uh, for, for all of those states. Uh, and, and in some ways it's more acute for the UK because we suffer from this, um, this neurosis in terms of our relationship with the US, uh, uh, which leads to some contortions, strange contortions, sometimes as happened under President Trump. So, you know, Transatlantic relationship uh, and how it works is important for all of us, and I don't see a sort of UK, US, uh, UK, European continent with European uh, 
divide on that. Third point, strategic autonomy and European sovereignty. And with some, some colleagues at Chatham House, uh, I mean, it seems like a lifetime ago, but in February, we wrote a piece on how important it was for the UK to think hard about strategic autonomy uh, and where it fits. I think it's even more important now. And actually, there's a very happy coincidence, I think, on the, the broader definition, the European sovereignty uh, end of uh, strategic autonomy, because that chimes completely with the kind of things that the UK um, set out in the integrated review in terms of science and technology base and all that. So, I mean, that cries out for uh, uh, an understanding uh, and a way uh, of working together, which is to, to mutual benefit. Um, and I think maybe we should draw a distinction, uh, as Ben has done, on, on the defence aspects uh, of that as well, because I think they're more problematic uh, for the UK being uh, more detached. But it will almost certainly push the idea of a, of a European pillar uh, within NATO as a sort of competing proposition uh, as well. So, you know, we, we could well see competing models, but maybe that's one for the Q&A. Um, one and a half points and I'll, and I'll finish. Um, the tilt hasn't gone away for the UK. And um, one may think it's a delusion, one may think it's uh, an overstretch of resources, but it's pretty integral to the way that the UK thought about how it's going to connect the Euro-Atlantic uh, with the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and uh, a couple of weekends ago, there was this joint US-UK get-together uh, on the Indo-Pacific. Indo uh, and what's clear is that it, it matters quite a lot to the UK, but it's it's going to be a less than effective policy if, and that's my half point, uh, the UK pursues that policy in a way that rubs up uh, other countries in the wrong way, read France. Uh, and and this, is, uh, this is where I see uh, a, a problem uh, that the UK has, which is possibly gonna be a persistent problem, which is in its bilateral relationship with France, um, which uh, could get even worse. I mean, if you can imagine such a thing, um, but you know, a, a re-elected president Macron and a Prime Minister Johnson still in power, that is not a match made in heaven. Uh, and the UK may be rather disconcerted with what Germany does on defense. You know, the UK likes the idea, and it's one of its top lines, as they say in you know, media speak, that it is the big spender on defense. And if Germany becomes the big spender on defense, uh, then what does that do? to the UK's thinking about the position that it occupies uh, uh, as a defence player. We're talking quite a way down the track, of course, because there's all sorts of things that, that could happen to, uh, to disrupt uh, Germany's new spend on defence and how it spends the money uh, and so on. But that triadic relationship, UK, France uh, and Germany, uh, could be even more difficult uh, in the future than it's been in the, very, in the recent past. And so if the UK puts a lot of store in in that relationship being quite important to the way that it connects to the continent, uh, then it, it makes UK's European policy even more difficult. So uh, I think there's a, a there's a lot of work to be done. You know, there are all sorts of ways that just by mood and saying the right kind of things that you could see a major improvement in the relationship between the UK and, and other uh, EU partners. But the current government seems to have a propensity uh, to go out uh, and, and punch people in the face diplomatically without needing to do so. Thank you. 
Well, um, I mean, we have a, a lovely stream of questions coming in. And if you thought that I was, um, you know, too direct, you, you, you're you going to hear from our audience. Uh, they're going to put you on the spot. And it's lovely to see some uh, familiar names there. Um, one uh, is uh, Benjamin Tallis from Hertie School in Berlin, who asks... Uh, Anita, am I able to come back on that question? Off. Am I able to come back on that last third question? <laughs> For a, a one-liner. Okay, I mean, I, I don't need to. That's fine. Yeah. Can you uh, wave it into the debate? I'm sure that uh, there are many points that are, are coming back in the Q&A, I can see. So a uh, question from Benjamin Tallis uh, from Hertie School, Berlin. Um, does the... Uh, Oh, sorry. No, you're right. Absolutely, Kate. I skipped you. I thought that I gave you the word. Oh, sorry. Uh, my, my my crystal ball, I mean, is doing really a, a bad job. Kate, go ahead. Um, no, I thought maybe I'd already used my allotted time and they're like, no, we've had it. We've had enough. Don't worry. We don't need any more. <laughs> um, I know when I ask, because to me, this is this is where we're able to think about the positive bits. We're able to think about the opportunity. and. I think that the devastation of what we're seeing in Ukraine and very likely will continue to see um, has already triggered such an extraordinary shift um, that, that Ben and Richard have already kind of mentioned that it allows for a reset, not just in UK's foreign policy, but actually in international relations more broadly. Um, I don't think that we have seen, even in these past few weeks, um, such an outpouring of, of um, consensus and outcry in response to a human rights crisis. Um, I think probably since the wars in former Yugoslavia and the atrocities in Bosnia. Um, I always thought that it would come with Syria, but it never did. And what came out of the atrocities and the failure to protect populations in former Yugoslavia and particularly in Bosnia was something of a global reset. And of course, you know, together with the, the horrors of what happened in Rwanda in 1994, and that led to a raising of expectations on and of the international community, of which the UK was an important part. It gave us um, the un unanimous commitment to a responsibility to help protect populations from atrocity crimes. And we can debate, you know, the extent to which R2P itself as a, as a principle um, has been forefront in global relations in the last 25 years, um, sorry, 16 years since it came out, but the principle that drove it was older than that um, or not, but it had a wider impact in international relations and it had a wider impact that is harder to measurable, it's more qualitative than quantitative in how the UK for some time was thinking about obligations and also how the public thinks about its obligations. We are seeing a similar push forward around Ukraine that allows the UK government to, and I, I actually think rather than an opportunity, it is actually an obligation to think quite seriously about how it can bring in its commitments around rights and around values into its foreign policy. Um, I'm obviously a human rights uh, activist and researcher. I will you know, demand more consistency. 
I know that practically that is not always going to be delivered, but they currently lack the means of making that assessment. What Russia's aggression also does is that it exposes what was always there of this relationship between foreign policy threats and global threats and British interests here in the UK and in the world in a very, very clear manner. And I think that brings an impetus to really recognize that the relationship between rights and values and foreign policy are not distinct. Human rights was always something that was just added on a little bit by DFID and a little bit by FCO, um, some training in the MOD, and it fell through the cracks. And in, to some extent, you know, the biggest foreign policy challenges that the UK face now and will face are to some extent a result of not just British failure, but a collective failure to recognise the deep relationship between rights and foreign policy and the need to explore that even in recognizing that there are gonna be always inconsistencies and that is a difficult thing to do. We look at China, we look at Russia, we look at India. These are the challenges that the UK needs to be prepared for. We look at climate change, the consequences of climate change, that even if everything stops today, the consequences that are already locked in to our heating planet are so dramatic that we will see the biggest population movements. We will see increased of um, armed violence, um, both of conflict and against groups, that actually that kind of mass violence will characterize the next political era unless something is dramatically changed. So I think if we are able collectively, whether as researchers or whether sort of as activists, whether as NGO, whether as government, to think about how those raised expectations can be properly met. I think that that is going to be really important. And I, I note that both Ben and Richard alluded to changing administrations or the potential for changing administrations in the US. We have a general election here in the UK within two years. I know we're so exhausted by them. Uh, this is, is this the longest we've gone without one? I have no idea. Um, there will be a general election. And I think that that, you know, there is going to be a conversation where the Labour Party has to determine its foreign policy. And I don't think that that has been very clear for some time. And perhaps um, the reinvigorated conversation after long years of vacuum around UK foreign policy might trigger something quite interesting from the Labour Party. But unfortunately, I do think that that remains to be seen. But I'll stop there. Thank you for letting me come in on that. No, thank you. It was a very important point and uh, uh, definitely one that we uh, should keep in mind about this possibility to rethink obligations and kind of, you know, have a, a, a good and hard look at uh, what we do and how we do it. Um, so, as I said, Benjamin Tallis from Hertie School Berlin asks, um, does the panel agree that British domestic policy, notably on migration, undermines its global aspirations? Would it be fair to say that the UK can have a network of liberty or a hostile environment, but not both? Then we have a question uh, from, and apologies for my uh, pronunciation, Ariana Srivastava, a student at Ashoka University, India. How should UK foreign policy deal with the rising tide of authoritarianism and with it, the rise of China? Should it align with the USA's hardline policy with regard to China? 
or should UK's foreign policy open up even more to Chinese investment and vice versa? And uh, a uh, third question, last one for this round, from uh, Poom, one of my students, uh, a master's student in international relations at LSE, who asks, do you think that this reorientation toward European security could restrict the UK from doing anything meaningful anywhere east of Suez, beyond symbolic actions, despite its global ambitions. Right, um, back to you panelists. Uh, um, Richard, would you like uh, to have a go? And uh, you know, you don't need to answer everything, but you know, give it a good stab. Thank you very much. I'm, what I want to do, if I may, is I'll take that last question about the Indo-Pacific. Um, and and Benjamin, Ben uh, Tallis, who's a very productive questioner, uh, I can see, also asked another question about the, the Indo-Pacific tilt as well. So, so I, I, I get to sort of tackle two interventions with one. You know, I, I think this, this, this tilt question is a fascinating one because it is both uh, a direct response uh, and the Prime Minister made this very clear, a, a direct response to what was thought to be a mistake in Britain's calculations about its, its geopolitical footprint, which is the end of East of Suez bases. And he said this very clearly. So there is a certain amount sort of back to the future uh, in UK uh, thinking uh, about the tilt. And I think it's a bit instructive to, to go back to that history, because if you look at the, the cabinet office papers, when they made the decision to, to pull back and, and to stop basing British forces east of Suez, they faced a choice, which was basically, could they afford to contribute to, uh, wholeheartedly contribute to their role as a, as a Euro-Atlantic power uh, and the, the role that they had in NATO and keep their nuclear deterrent? Uh, or, um, or how could they balance it with what they did uh, east of Suez? They couldn't do both. So they decided to, to pull back and focus on Europe because that was the core UK uh, interest and keeping the nuclear deterrent. Um, and, and, you know, I guess the question is, uh, will that choice come up for, for the UK uh, in the future? Um, maybe, but something like AUKUS is quite interesting because, you know, AUKUS um, isn't a, a traditional uh, military uh, alliance type relationship. It's a relationship on, on technology uh, sharing as a way to uh, introduce uh, a role for the UK in that region, which otherwise clearly, you know, the balance of forces are such that it can't make much of a difference, uh, even if it has a persistent presence, uh, persistent presence uh, in terms of its, uh, in terms of its naval power. So, you know, I, I think that this is one of these areas where time is going to tell. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense when you think about, yes, you know, we, the UK needs to have a position uh, on the Indo-Pacific, but doing it so on its own, it's clearly not possible. And the point that, that Ben makes is, will it not be better for the UK to focus on Europe uh, and then free up a bit of space for the US to do more in the Indo-Pacific? I think the short answer is yes. Um, but the, the problem uh, is that it, it it goes against the idea that, again, I think it's hardwired into the integrated review, that the UK has to think big uh, and has to look as if it's tackling uh, everything uh, globally. And the bit that's really missing for me in that document, and I hope that future iterations will sort it out, is 
is how do you build coalitions? Um, the kind of things that Liz Truss has been talking about, but in using better language, uh, frankly. Uh, and, and how do you really build these kind of coalitions where you have shared values uh, and, and why you're coalescing is not necessarily to address security threats in sort of military security threat sense, but because you, know, you see these values as being absolutely integral to the best way that you provide uh, for the security uh, uh, of your populations and, and for your nation. And I think that's one of the things that gets gets lost with some of the messaging that the, the UK comes forward. So, um, but great questions, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Kate, so they don't forget you. Thank you. Um, I think I'll take that middle question around the rising tide of authoritarianism. Um, this is something that um, we look at a lot of, uh, at protection approaches and are really concerned by. Um, it's linked, I think, to a really global trend of something slightly wider than that of democratic backsliding, um, where we're seeing in sort of practically every region of the world, these indicators um, that um, suggest or, or can measure um, the openness of a society, the safety and inclusion of the society, um, the degree to which the press is free um, and true, um, and the institutions are trusted, that the democratic process in its most kind of, um, well, not its most, but a more um, generous understanding and interpretation of what, it, of what it means rather than a very narrow one is allowed to flourish. Um, and we can see indications of democratic backsliding here in the UK. Um, and what we see in, in these kind of dual relationships of rising authoritarianism and democratic backsliding is a tendency towards identity politics and that kind of factional um, development away from broad-based um, democratic process and political parties towards a kind of fractured democratic space, the undermining of the multilateral system, the undermining of kind of uh, legal uh, and, and normative standards, both on the international level and on the domestic and regional level, wherever we're, we're talking about. Um, and I suppose this goes to sort of those threats that I was mentioning earlier, that we see particularly in China and Russia, but also I think, you know, what we're seeing in, in, in India is extremely concerning. You know, I, I was having, conversations earlier today with, with, with colleagues who were essentially seeing sort of these steps towards, and I don't say this lightly, but these steps towards um, a highly organized systematic campaign of identity-based violence against Muslims in, in India and of other minorities that has yet to even really properly feature or be acknowledged in um, UK trade relationships and conversations with India. Um, the UK will also pay the price of not using this opportunity to try and use those levers it can to have those conversations. I don't say that as if it's an easy thing to do. But because the UK lacks these capabilities to map properly the networks that underpin these structures of violence, state and non-state, because authoritarian creep often is kind of led from the front, but it is enabled and fueled from below and from other structures. And it might often be there that the UK can sort of help with others play that part to help mitigate that trend and that trajectory. 
but also the easiest answer, or I mean easy in principle, of what the UK can do in front of this rising tide is to lead by example, to not undermine its own standards and its own legislative um, and normative standards, um, and to recognise how our own democratic processes, uh, whether in Parliament, our own democratic institutions or the institutions that allow democracy to flourish in this country are protected and supported rather than undermined and teared down sometimes by the elected um, leaders themselves. Um, so that that neither of those strategies are easy, but there are certainly many, many things that the UK can do and it needs to inbuild into its bilateral um, country strategies, the understanding of those warning signs of authoritarianism in countries which are perhaps less further along and where there is more capacity for British influence because those are currently not done um, and, and should be. And the IR kind of hinted that it might be done, but so far we're, we're not there yet. Thank you. Ben, you are left with the question, you know, about the tension between uh, uh, migration and global aspiration. Um, I think that that could be something that you might want to comment on. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take your direction and I shall, I shall leverage that to, to add on to what Kate was just saying, um, <clears throat> because that, that connect between the domestic and the foreign, I think, is really, really important. Um, and the disconnect that is evident in all in all countries. I mean, it's not not a, a unique UK problem, but that disconnect is really really important. Um, and I think, I mean, to, to be very frank with you, and as, as I say, I'm I'm riffing now off, off Kate's answer. You know, if if there was to be a Brexit benefit, <laughs> and I don't think there is, but if there was to be a Brexit benefit in my mind's eye, what I'd love to see is the EU and UK competing on a human rights led agenda showing up each other's hypocrisy, being, you know, testing out new, new ways of doing things that challenge the other partner to do things better. Because we all know there's a, there's a lot of rhetoric, there's, a lot of, there's, a, there's not a lot of follow through, there's a lot of historical uh, inconsistencies there. Um, and I think there is an opportunity here for the UK, bearing in mind where it comes from, if we can bracket its imperialism and its neocolonialism just for a moment, there's a huge reservoir of tradition, of history, of, of policy that the UK could leverage in a foreign policy that was devoted to democracy, to, to, to human rights, to a normative led uh, kind of foreign policy, which could really show up the European Union in terms of its own policies on human rights and on migration. And you'd love to see sort of virtuous competition between these two values led actors in, in the international sphere. My fear is Coming back to the question you asked me by answer, my fear is that I don't know that the domestic politics of the UK could sustain it. Thank you. Second round, um, we start from, uh, again, apologies for my pronunciation, Luca Auger, uh, PhD at the Sorbonne in Paris, uh, who asks, I mean, comments and then asks, the UK's slower response in comparison to the US and EU is known in expert circles and in the foreign press. Still, the UK government claims it was faster, especially than the EU. How far does the British public adhere to this view? And what does this say about the UK's general post-Brexit position towards the EU? I think that this point uh, about the British public and how much they buy into uh, the um, UK government's claim is quite an important one. 
Um, there is also an interesting point made by Leonardo de Agostini, uh, who is uh, uh, working in Brussels in a conflict prevention NGO. And he says that he has to note that the UK, rather than being invited to relevant discussions, is often left outside the room. From my daily advocacy activities with EU policymakers um, to uh, Prime Minister Johnson being excluded from next Thursday's EU Council with uh, President uh, Biden. Uh, does this uh, point to a very real diminished role for the UK in European foreign policy? And last one uh, from Kali Lewis, another one of my students, uh, delighted uh, uh, to see Kali from Wales. Uh, to what extent do you think current foreign policy failures are uniquely partisan, given the Conservatives have now been in power for 12 years. Do you think Labour is offering a credible alternative, or I, I'll add, can it offer a credible alternative? Right, um, back to you guys. Uh, who would like to start uh, and include a, a sort of a one line uh, of a final comments at leisure? Uh, shall we go with Kate first and then Ben and Richard? Sure. Uh, I'm going to take the Labour question just for fun. Um, I mean, certainly it can offer a credible alternative. Whether it is right now, I, I don't know if it is. In fact, I, I don't think it is. Um, and that might be for like really strategic Labour, you know, sort of party reasons. Um, but I do think that there is this assumption that elections aren't won on foreign policy issues, even despite all we've been talking about for however many years is Brexit, which is a foreign policy issue and has fundamentally changed everything. Um, I also think that the British public care a far greater deal about how the UK behaves in the world than is generally accepted. I mean, we've done public polling on this and so have many other people. Um, our, our most recent was um, a couple of years ago because we haven't done anything since COVID. One of the things I found really interesting was around um, identity and um, the sense of belonging that we found. People who are over 45 in the UK generally consider themselves to be, um, you know, uh, English, Welsh, or, you know, they sort of have a kind of sense of this national identity and, and to feel themselves part of the UK. Um, but they tend not to consider themselves to be European or part of um, a global community. Under 45, that sense of national identity is not diluted, but they also really very strongly consider themselves to be part um, of a global community and to be European. Um, there is some inflection around those that voted to leave the European Union and not, but even those younger people that voted to leave um, the EU still consider themselves to be you know, more international. 
We know that the British public thinks that the UK has responsibilities abroad, as Ukraine has really demonstrated, as Afghanistan demonstrated. The public outcry and the public warmth towards the trauma that Afghanistan was going towards and the anger, I, you know, is something that should be noted, even if it did not trigger a response from the government, particularly, again, going back to the point around migration and refugees, that I think, you know, it was obligated to, to deliver. So I say all that because I really do think that the political party that is able to capture that energy, to capture that more global identity, you know, we are a more connected world, I really think actually can make quite significant and substantial electoral gains. It's not to say it's more important, but these issues that we're talking about around climate change, around disinformation, around the role of Russia in Europe, around the UK and the world, who we trade with, they resonate here domestically in the UK. You know, our, our, the, the, the Borders and Nationality Bill is about people in the UK as well as those who are seeking sanctuary here. So I think Labour certainly can. Um, I would like to see that warming up pretty soon, given that, um, you know, we are coming up to election cycle soon anyway. Um, but I don't think it currently is, no. Thank you. Ben. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll leave the, the domestic British to, to, to Kate and Richard. I'll pick up the, I'll pick up the Eurobubble question. Um, I mean, Leonardo, you're, you're right. But I would say, you know, you, you make reference to the UK, um, you know, be, being left outside the room. You talk about Prime Minister Johnson being excluded from the European Council. You know, the UK walked out. They were, they're not being excluded. They walked out. Um, and I think the European Union has, has repeatedly said, you know, doors are open to, to, to come up with a new kind of security and defence relationship, which I think would benefit both sides. Um, I think all the logic is there for the European Union and the UK to cooperate in security and defence, on human rights, in development. There's a, there's a whole menu of potential cooperation. Um, but the UK can't or won't walk through that door. Um, and this, if you like, is, 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 my, is my final summation, um, and it's quite a, quite a graphic image. Um, it's almost like the, the, the rotten fish of Brexit still hangs around the neck of British foreign policy. Um, and, and for reasons which, which escape me entirely, the nature of domestic British politics will not let the British political system let that go. Um, and so for as long as UK foreign policy is, is grounded, is, is tempered by, is corrupted by, these Brexit debates that you seem to still be going through, um, I don't. I don't see any great hope or expectation of, of of change in the in the short to medium term. And I will. I will vest my hopes in in your imminent general election. Richard, public opinion for you and uh, final thoughts. Uh, I mean, Kate. Kate's made the point uh, a very good point about sort of polling and and what we understand about uh, the values of the electorate and so on, and also made the point that you know foreign policy having a very low level of salience uh, in general elections, as did Europe, of course. Um, uh, it wasn't an issue that that moved people uh, until the last uh, general election, arguably. Um, but uh, I, I think uh, also the thing that has changed uh, is clearly there are issues which were not foreign policy uh, in the past, which are now absolutely uh, foreign policy and, and end up on people's doorstep like climate uh, change. And people spend a lot of time worrying about uh, foreign policy now, even if they don't know they're worrying about foreign policy. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a, a positive uh, in a way because it opens the door to a more inclusive 
uh, foreign policy uh, for the UK. Um, and, and that's, to me, is, is in a way the sort of the, the, the way in which uh, I'd kind of not be too depressed by um, what uh, Ben says, which I think, I think you're right, you know, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to shake off uh, Brexit for the UK because we're cleaved. And we remain cleaved if you look at uh, all of the polling uh, on that. And the only way we're going to find our way around it is to, to think uh, about, uh, you know, the way in which the UK connects uh, outside uh, and try in a way to recalibrate the thinking about Europe. So it isn't this thing which is always about the domestic political cleavage. It isn't all about uh, an identity that still is important for some people, you know, five years uh, on uh, from a referendum, almost six years on, um, that that we're able to have a bit more of an open and honest conversation about what is in the UK's interests in terms of how uh, the UK uh, relates uh, to Europe, because it's connected to these other issues that we've been talking about, you know, values in foreign policy, the environment and all that. But I have to say, I really love the idea of some kind of sort of normative power UK clashing uh, with uh, normative power Europe uh, and the tussle from the both of those uh, resulting in be something better for both sides. I mean, that, you know, that's the future that we should all vote for, uh, I think, um, rather than the, the present that we have. Thank you. Now it is uh, up to me to mop up everything else that has been put in the chat. And that's quite a daunting task. Uh, I mean, for the record, I have been passed on question from our uh, super helpful uh, assistants in the department. And now that I scrolled down the list of Q&A, we could be here for another hour. And maybe, you know, there is a room for a follow-up debate at some point. But I would like to just make Make a couple of uh, points. The first one is addressed to George Foden, who comments on the fact that we have been uh, a bit depressing uh, and in our uh, analysis. Uh, and I think that much of our uh, depressing analysis is actually linked to the fact that we all have a very high expectations uh, and knowledge of what the UK can do. Uh, and therefore, it becomes frustrating to see how a lot of uh, um, good contributions that the UK could make get lost in what has been uh, mentioned uh, from the disjointed uh, response uh, to uh, the uh, war in Ukraine uh, that uh, Ben mentioned, to the uh, fundamental inconsistencies that Kate mentioned. Uh, mentioned uh, in uh, at the beginning uh, and um, therefore it seems to me that you know there are opportunities out there as Richard mentioned in terms of you know connecting to uh, European countries uh, in order to manage the post uh, Ukraine uh, containment of uh, uh, Russia um, in building up a, uh, the European pillar uh, in uh, NATO but there are also you know there is the need to to strategize and to rethink. Anyway, uh, this is probably the uh, exciting uh, part, uh, you know, how to do it. 
And I have to admit that I, I kind of, uh, uh, I see also the point that uh, Amit Neufeld uh, mentions at, at one point about the uh, UK, just stop getting involved uh, in foreign affairs and focus on, on building uh, UK domestic politics. But at the same time, I also see that the UK has a lot to um, contribute to uh, managing a world order that is a little bit more uh, just and uh, fair, and it would uh, be a shame not to exploit the expertise uh, that uh, is there, um, from you know uh, the military side to the digital side, to participation in institution to um, uh, the you know vibrant uh, discussion in the uh, civil society. Um, I mean, it, it would be a, a shame not to use this opportunity to come up with uh, a bit of a clearer plan, because I think that one of the conclusions of uh, tonight's debate is that uh, we are all still waiting to see the precise direction this is going to. The, due to the war uh, in Ukraine, in a way, um, everyone is reassessing uh, foreign policies and trying to understand uh, the uh, future and uh, what it has in store. I think that in a way that the bottom line of today is really uh, to be continued, uh, uh, let the debate uh, uh, take a place at some point soon uh, again, uh, because it is only by debating that we can shape uh, our own ideas, uh, suggest um, uh, which opportunities to pick. Uh, and that's why I am extremely grateful to our panelists, but also to our audience and to all the comments and questions that they have put uh, in the chat. Um, we will uh, keep up the uh, good conversation um, and uh, hopefully uh, at some point we will be able to uh, see a, a clearer direction in British foreign policy. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.